case file number 3.3. One network to rule them all. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Ymir, did you ever watch the IT crowd? Yeah, I I think I've seen the entire first season. My wife's really binged it multiple times. but uh, So I've only caught a few of them mm-hmm. because that's her binge thing. But one of the episodes, the two tech support guys, Moss and Roy, convinced their manager, Jen, that they had the actual internet, which was exemplified by a standard router uh, oh yeah home router yeah you saw yeah, that episode yeah yeah they were like like stephen hawkins put it in his box and like trusted us with it or something yes yeah <laughs> and uh so they convinced the, convinced her that this was the whole internet and because they were making a, a big deal about it so that she could present it in front of all of the upper management in her big presentation mm-hmm. and uh they got her whole hog bought into it and then she did a presentation and showed the off. This is the internet. And they were all ooing and aahing because they didn't know any better either. Right. Yeah. I mean, they knocked it over. Hilarity ensued. You can watch the episode if you want. But the thing is, for a lot of people, they don't see any more of the internet than just the router at home. Sometimes right. not even that. So today we're going to talk about kind of how the internet's built, addressing how they're assigned and some of the basics on how routing works um, okay. and some of the things that have happened when things don't go quite right. Yeah. Cause it's like, to your point of the like, people don't really know what the internet is. Like it is very common uh, complaint sometimes uh, doing any sort of admin work where someone calls you and says, I think the internet's down. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I can almost assure you it's not down because we be in a world of her otherwise. Well, and we'll get into this, but the, but like the point of the original ARPANET, which is actually the first thing we're going to talk about. And the internet was that it was fault tolerant to being broken apart. It was conceived in the Cold War with the idea that they wanted a network resilient to a nuclear war. Um, And that the parts of the internet, even if they weren't connected, would still function autonomously. Oh, okay. There is no like central internet. The internet is a set of rules, a set of protocols that allow lots of interconnected things to all work together. And like, it's amazing in that, but let's talk a little bit about how that happened. Now, back in the 70s, when they first started talking about this, they were working from the telecommunications model and the phone system was fairly robust at that point. I mean, not super robust. If we ever do an episode on freaking, we'll talk about that. But, um, but all of the phone switch, regular phone switched networks that were analog audio 
or all circuit switched networks. You've seen things from movies where you had people going back and forth on the on the switchboards, plugging cables in. Yep. So this is the whole. That's the whole circuit. One of the foundational ideas is moving from that circuit switch network to a packet switch network. This is like the whole concept behind moving from analog to digital. Okay. To, to being able to take individual chunks and being able to send them through a network without regard to what path they're taking and reassemble them at the end. Mm -hmm. This is basic networking that we've all heard and talked about with TCP IP. The ARPANET did a lot of research on this, laid out some, some stuff with that, and coming right out of that in the, in the late 70s, uh, Steve Crocker, Vince Cerf, and Bob Kahn started working on a working group to get TCP IP written. And they came out with the foundational protocols of IP and TCP. Um, in fact, Vince Cerf uh, has, has said that you can blame the fact that we have 32-bit addresses instead of 128-bit addresses on him. It's a decision he made off the cuff one time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing is, like, if you were to credit somebody with creating the internet, these would be some of the guys. Vince Cerf and Robert Kahn actually penned a, a thing uh, called Al Gore and the Internet. And I'm going to read some of it here because I think it's worth reading the whole running gag for decades at this point of Al Gore saying he invented the Internet. These guys, yes. This is what these guys had to say about that. Al Gore was the first political leader to recognize the importance of the Internet and promote it and support its development. No one person or even a small group of persons exclusively invented the Internet. It is the result of many years of ongoing collaboration among people in the government and the university community. But as two people who designed the basic architecture and the core protocols that make it, the internet work, we would like to acknowledge VP Gore's contributions as a congressman, senator, and as vice president. No other elected official, to our knowledge, has made a greater contribution over a longer period of time. Last year, the vice president made a straightforward statement on his role. He said, during my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the internet. We don't think, as some people have argued, that Gore intended to claim that he invented the internet. Moreover, there is no question in our minds that while serving a senator, Gore's initiatives had a significant and beneficial effect on the still evolving internet. The fact of the matter is that Gore is talk, uh, was talking about and promoting the internet long before most people were even were listening. So um, <laughs> the guys that did, and I would strongly argue, the most to start the internet said that i mean we always knew it was probably a little silly that joke but it turns out the guys that that would know said that <laughs> but right now all of the internet addresses that we have who has what addresses and keeping making sure all of this works is done by the internet corporation for assigned names and numbers i can they actually also run dns we talked about that a little bit in the dns episodes yeah i remember that yep so they were established in 1998. It was actually later than I expected. <laughs> Turns out that a lot of stuff was a little bit more off the cuff up until about that point. A lot of the basic functions of internet uh, address management was actually done by one guy, John really? Postel, uh, originally at UCLA and uh, then at uh, USC ISI, uh, which is the Internet Serv uh, Sciences Institute. He's a computer science researcher and was involved with the ARPANET from, well, it was involved in the ARPANET project too. So he was one of the researchers that was there on the ground floor and was just basically the guy who kept track and managed all of this stuff. 
Okay. So, so he testified in front of Congress in 1997, where he said that it was a side task of his uh, of his internet research was to keep track <laughs> of all of this stuff. So, probably in response to this, the Department of Commerce started establishing ICANN in January of 1998. <laughs> the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority is currently under ICANN. It's a function of ICANN. But it was created by John Postel and, and, and his longtime collaborator, Joyce Reynolds. Uh, they always talked about IANA doing the stuff that they were doing, that basically they were enacting the functions of, of IANA. It wasn't John Postel doing it. It was John Postel doing it as IANA. Mm, okay. And they even referred to it in the RFCs as early as 1988. Hmm. So John Postel had died in 1998. Uh, after th- 30 years of managing this stuff selflessly, like this was not a, a assigned task for him, but he was very important to a lot of the foundational getting the internet stuff running. Like he, he took on the management task of making sure the addresses were managed and got out and everything. That's um, crazy. It is. It's nice. <laughs> um, so he died in 98. And then his collaborator, Joyce Reynolds, uh, put in a lot of work to make sure that IANA as a function got institutionalized and, and you know, became a, an enduring organization. Mm. Um, and they were formally transitioned from USC to ICANN at the very beginning of 1999. Now, the funny thing about this was about two years prior, when there was some hullabaloo with Network Solutions, the original domain registrar, and kind of their fiat power over domains. Mm-hmm. Hostel actually wrote up a, a, a white paper proposing making uh, IANA a, uh, a standalone entity. Mm. It was about, and that happened about two years before his death. Oh, wow. So he was like, this is the way it should go. Nobody listened. And then he died and it <laughs> happened anyway. Jeez. <laughs> anyway, mm. pour one out for, for John Postel. He did us all a big, uh, a big solid. Uh, making sure the internet became the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So IANA's job, as far as internet addressing is concerned, is that they give out the large large blocks of addresses, slash eights, which are about 16.8 million addresses, just shy, to the 24th, if mm-hmm. anybody wants to do the math. Um, and we will later. So they give chunks out in those slash eight chunks, 16 million plus addresses, chunks to the regional registrars, the regional internet registry um, organizations. And there are five of them. One for America, ARIN, one for Europe, uh, RIPE, or RIPE NNC. Um, The uh, APNIC, which is Asia Asia Pacific, uh, LACNIC, which is Latin America, Caribbean islands, and then um, AFRINIC, which is Africa. Okay. So they get those chunks of addresses and then they give them out per their own rules but those rules are very similar from from uh, regional registrar to regional registrar one of those rules is that you have to have a autonomous system number to be assigned any prefixes mm, okay so basically an asn is owned by somebody by a distinct organization and they make sure that they know who it is and when they give out the autonomous system number and the autonomous system number gets the address space. Okay. Now, this ends up being really important when we talk about how routing works. 
But so far, the important thing is you have to get an autonomous system number in order to get IP space. And those, and they'll give out IP space based on basic your case for need. I've actually done this once. Really? Um, yeah. Um, oh, okay. One of the one of my federal contracts uh, wanted to have a service that was very widely used um, by lots of different organizations on the internet in a fault tolerant fashion. So we had to get address space sufficient to have all of our points of presence and be able to do the routing tolerance traffic management stuff that was that was incumbent on that. And we went through the whole process of getting the autonomous system number, making the application of the case that we were going to do. And it wasn't just, hey, what are you doing with it? But also mm-hmm. how much address space are you going to use? Because hmm. they're very sensitive, especially at that point in time, which was, uh, I think, 2012 or so, of how much address space they were giving out. Right. So they didn't want to give out large chunks of addresses for very low address utilization hmm. uh, because it turns that out we're running out of IPv4 addresses. Yeah. <laughs> the regional internet registrars, they have this, their own kind of informal organization or unincorporated organization, but it's, it's I wouldn't say it's informal actually, uh, but it, it's not its own corporation, but it's kind of their jointly agreed entity uh, mm-hmm. that, that is the number resource organization or the NRO. And in that, they have two basic functions. Um, one is to protect the unallocated, unused uh, IP space. Um, okay. So that because let's say they have a chunk of addresses that haven't been given out yet. Mm-hmm. It's possible, again, we'll get into this a little bit later, for somebody to start using that kind of unofficially. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they're just squatting on IP addresses. Exactly. Squatting is the word that I was probably looking for. <laughs> um, and they're also there to, uh, they call it the the bottom up innovation of, of the internet and the internet community, uh, basically making sure that there's a voice from the folks that are using the internet for business or, per, or, or, or individual use. They have a voice in these non-governmental organizations that actually run this stuff. And mm. Yeah, I mean, and when I say NG, non-governmental organizations, this started all as like U.S.-based entities, but they've slowly moved over to international uh, consortiums that have lots of stakeholders from from uh, all over the world, as opposed to everything being run by the U.S. Okay, this is actually a really big deal in the in the late '90s, early 2000s. The uh, level of control that the U.S. had over the internet, because well, they built it. They funded a lot of the fundamental research that got us there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the, the relative permissiveness in how, uh, when we got to the actual internet that we have, that address space was was allocated, allowed people to get into the internet that not necessarily by the fiat of, of the U.S. government made the internet what it is today, but mm-hmm. there's always been a concern that the U.S. would exercise control over the internet at some point. Um, I think at this point, most of the organizations themselves have internationalized, Mm -hmm. but some people do still worry because a lot of the actual control mechanisms are in the U.S. Um, Right, yeah. There's still some concern about it just by virtue of the the actual infrastructure is is owned by U.S. folks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Controlled areas. 
Um, like lingering thought in the back of your mind that, oh, if I piss them off, they're just going to like yeah. turn me off. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about, about like unallocated and reserved space, there's actually several chunks of the internet that are reserved space. You probably already realize a few of them. The, the uh, non-routable space that most enterprises use. Mm-hmm. The, everything that starts with 10, 10.0.0.0 and yep. 255.0.0.0 net mass. Yep. And then uh, 172.16.0.0, everything in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's actually a slash 12. So you can go from 172.16 to 172.31 is all reserved space for that. I didn't actually realize this until I was looking this up today, but I probably saw this at one point, but it didn't stick. 0.0.0.0 slash 8 is actually a reserved space. You really? shouldn't, yeah, you shouldn't see an address that starts with zero. The, the only time I've ever seen an address like zero to zero to zero to zero is usually like for bind IPs on like services, mm-hmm. like for yeah. like gray logger netbox. It's just like anything. Yes. Well, yeah. And, and the, the route zero dot zero dot zero dot zero slash zero is the signifier for the whole internet, for the, mm-hmm. the route for the whole internet, the default route. Right. Um, now, there's some circumstances where you would see that, but they're kind of limited to specific software circumstances you shouldn't see it on the internet oh okay there's the 192 space and towards the end there's uh in 203.0.113.0 slash 24 is in documentation space there's some spaces that are reserved all the way at the end that are reserved 240.0.0.0 slash 4 was originally reserved as the class e network but, uh, I think I vaguely remember reading about that, like for yeah. my CCNA or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of this stuff honestly <laughs> does come up when you're doing research for for some of those uh, for the, some of those networking certifications. Honestly, the contents of this podcast probably gets you a quarter of the way through some of that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, if I do a good job explaining it, anyway. Yeah. And we're more entertaining. So. Well, hopefully. <laughs> now let's talk about. Addressing, subnetting, and routing. And I understand that some folks, this is probably old hat, but since this is this episode, the whole reason I'm going through it is kind of a foundational episode, so I can refer back to it later. Um, I'm just going to go through this a little bit. So a regular IPv4 address or an IPv4 address is, is made of 32 bits. And we section that up into four 32-bit words, 8-bit two hexadecimal numbers. And that goes from zero, and if you're doing it in decimal, zero to 255, and that's where that comes from. Mm. It seems awkward to go zero to 255, but when you're going from zero to FFF, or to FF uh, as a two-digit number, you're using the whole space. And so the whole reason why IP addresses are clunky is because you're converting from binary to decimal and they figured they'd make it hard for you, the human, and not hard for the computer. Yeah, that makes sense. It's easiest to think about subnetting if you actually take that 32-bit number and string it out as binary. Mm-hmm. So the reserve space 192. If you think about the hex or the binary, it's going to be one in the 128-bit space and one in the 64-bit place. So uh, the eight bits of that would be one, one, and then six zeros. Mm-hmm. So what a subnet mask is, is just which bits, the bits that are ones from left to right, that 
it needs to match to know if if two different addresses are in the same network. Hmm. So if you had 192.0.0.0 slash two, mm-hmm. um, as long as the first two bits of the of the address it's trying to match were ones in that binary number, it would be in the same network. It would be in that network. Right. But the thing is, it's it never goes one zero one zero one zero one. It always goes ones from right to left, a certain number of them. And when you look at a CIDR mask, the slash twenty four slash eight kind of thing, that's just the number of bits in from the left that are all ones. Mm-hmm. So a slash eight is eight bits in, which means that there are twenty four bits because it's a thirty two bit number that can be different and still be in the same network. So. Right. A slash eight has two to the 24th, that's 60 million seven, uh, 770 something thousand IP addresses in it. Or on the other hand, a slash 24, it's eight bits that are open and two to the eighth is 256. The thing is that it uh, that subnets actually have to be broken up, not just in chunks that are the correct size, but they have to be done at the bit boundaries. So you need to make sure it's always a, a relevant power of two. Mm, okay. Like I was saying earlier, this is all to make it easier on the computer because the fastest thing a computer can do is check if two bits are matching and decide whether or not they are true mm, or false. Okay. It is the fastest thing a computer can do. Yeah. So you have to remember that the computer or the router has to do this for every single packet. Billions of packets a day. Well, millions of an individual computer and billions overall packets a day. So right. It has to happen super, super fast. And they built IP addressing so that it could happen super, super fast. So a router that has multiple routes takes the one with the smallest or with the biggest CIDR mask, the smallest network prefix. So if you had a slash 24 or a slash eight and a slash zero, it would do the 24 first, the most Mm. specific route first, and then move down. Okay. Um, So that's how, that, that is how routers figure out where they're, which way a packet needs to go. So now you know what one router does. And one router has a network directly to it, attached to it, and then it has other places to go, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how does it tell the next router that it's connected to, that the network that it's got connected to it is connected to it, and that it should send all the traffic to that network over to the first router? That's what routing protocols are for. And the most important one for all of this is one called BGP, Border Gateway Protocol. It's an open standard. The autonomous system numbers we were talking about, those are actually fundamental to the way that BGP works. The first router will tell second router, hey, this is my autonomous system number, and this is the prefix that's attached to it. Now, what that means is that the the second router can get different prefixes and different autonomous system numbers attached to it and all have them in one table and know who provided the route to where. And this becomes important because the point of the internet is that you can have multiple paths to the same network. Mm. You need to have costing and who owns the network being able to come through different providers at the same time. Okay. So a multi-home network in order to get traffic that is let's say in Verizon's network, come mm-hmm. directly to it as opposed to going over the rest of the internet and then having a connection to basically the rest of the internet has to do with announcing 
that prefix both to Verizon and to the rest of the internet and setting up traffic shaping costing so that the traffic that is coming from Verizon doesn't make it through the rest of the internet and comes directly there, but nobody else goes through Verizon's network. Hmm. You would do that for various reasons, but a lot of the deep graybeard, well, we probably shouldn't use the word graybeard anymore, but, um, (laughs) but a lot of the, the, like the deep internet working folks that, that are, that make all of this run, they think long and hard about this. They're very simple rules, but you can implement them in very complex ways. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the things that can that can be done to mess with the internet. <laughs> because it turns out that there isn't a lot of security built into to the way that this stuff works. The BGP protocol inherently doesn't have strong protections to tell you that you can't announce prefixes you don't own. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Now we'll get into it at the end of this. Like it's not nothing, but it's not as much as you'd hope. So let's talk about some unexpected use of unassigned space. The case of the dot one network, uh, 1.0.0.0/8. So it was originally one part of the reserve space. You weren't supposed to use it for anything. Um, Mm was occasionally used for inside private networks. So we're running out of IP addresses. And Diana said in about 2010, hey, we want to be able to give this out. I wonder what's happening with it right now. So they undertook <laughs> a study. Right. When they originally connected it up from the story I, could, I found, um, the original router that they set up to announce that got slammed immediately. Really? Yeah. Turns out after a little bit of tinkering and a little bit more research that there was about um, 160 megabit of traffic going to that ne- that prefix. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Even though it wasn't supposed to be routed at all. Yeah. Now, there's a whole paper on this. It's actually kind of interesting, at least if you're a networking dork like me. But the most important thing that came out of it was that a ton of that traffic was all destined for 1.1.1.1. Okay. People had just put 1.1.1.1. It was actually in a, a large number of like Cisco's examples of configurations and stuff. Oh, <laughs> okay. That makes sense. <laughs> it's just like um, example.com actually yeah, I mean, a ton of traffic. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say that. Like yeah, a lot of like domain requests to example.com. Yeah. And somebody was selling something. I'm trying to remember, but there were there was a uh, another domain that was used in a lot of like email examples. Somebody was selling it as a as a uh, kind of a network periscope, an internet I'm, periscope. Uh, I'm going to assume I'm going to assume that's at somecompany.com because I, I actually just put a script in um, to my environment and I forgot to take that out. So when it like I got the test script and I was like, oh, that's something I got to edit. So yeah, there's a few examples of of how stuff like made it into documentation and is now kind of an interesting periscope into the into the internet. That's funny. For like default configurations and stuff, it's it's pretty hilarious. But there have been some examples, and I I'm I heard this anecdotally. Honestly, I I, I was running a little short on time, and I couldn't find documentation of any time this has actually happened. Uh, but I've heard stories from. Mm-hmm. folks who know networking better than me i'm going to say that it's technically possible that this was done and um it may very well have happened but so 
you know, because you've worked in the federal space and as have I, that a lot of organizations that got in on the ground floor, including an awful lot of the federal government, have a lot of IP space that they don't route to the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll, they'll use it as basically private space internally or may not use it at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, so if you know one of those address spaces exists and it's not routed or announced on the internet, and there are ways of determining that, and you're, you know, a country that has a pretty good control over what gets in and out of your, your country's uh, telecommunications boundaries, and you're running a little short on IP space, mm. what's to prevent you from using that IP space within that country and announcing it internally? Yeah, yeah. Turns out, basically nothing. <laughs> nothing. There's no technical control that really prevents you from doing that. Even the security stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit wouldn't really prevent a nationalized telecom from doing that in violation of, of those standards. Because who are you gonna who are you gonna go to? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I have heard stories about this about at least one particular country, but because I don't have anything to go to any any buddy's site source to site, I'm not gonna say who. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you could probably get it in less than three guesses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, there's there's three that are the very top. So some of the things that you could do to BGP, one of them is route injection. Now, BGP works by making a long duration TCP connection between two routers. So you'll make the connection, the routers will handshake when they have their BGP link established, either because one of them rebooted or they establish a new connection, right? Mm. Now, they don't communicate a ton, only really updates, and there's sometimes keep alive stuff. So what a researcher found uh, was that what you could do is if you knew enough about that connection, you knew the TCP windows and everything that was happening with that connection, mm, Okay. you could inject a route by announcing to one router an update and then announcing to the other router of that pair the other side of the update and put your router in the middle of their communications for a certain prefix. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Now, again, doing that requires a lot of specific information, but is probably something a nation state actor is capable of. Mm-hmm. Again, no specific things, but the research is sound. Um, now, mm-hmm. when that research came out, one of the things that became best practice was to set cryptographic keys for BGP connections. So route okay. announcements can't be done uh, by that kind of man-in-the-middle injection. But that's not required for implementation of BGP. It's not one of those things that the standard no longer supports unencrypted connections because that would have been a real pain to implement all over the place. Because if you're thinking about it, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of routers that are operating on the core of the internet. Mm -hmm. The ones that are announcing routes to one another, some of them aren't owned by the same company, owned by the same entities. Right, right. So you need to coordinate those passwords, and they're passwords. There isn't a public key infrastructure or any kind of delegated model attached to that. Oh, okay. So how do you like hit that switch? And moreover, if you ever have a problem, your time to fix has gone from rebooting the router to, oh, gosh, we now need to troubleshoot the crypto. Yeah. When that original advisory came out, 
a lot of folks did it within their network and, and I'm not saying that nobody did it, but it's not, I wouldn't say that it's universal. I, I don't really have insight anymore where I'm at right now. I don't get to see much of internet traffic, but I would say that there's probably a decent chunk of the internet that doesn't have uh, that, that kind of BGP security implemented. But, you know, route injection is probably still a thing that you can do in some places, but you need to be able to predict some of the TCP stuff in order to sneak in there. Mm. But it would allow for the, the eavesdropping of network, connect network connections. Right. So it's possible, frankly, I've always found it easier if you were going to try and do that kind of operation to intercept it at either the source of the destination. But intelligence agencies have, have nation state level, level resources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the other thing that you can do is kind of announce a prefix that isn't yours. As early as 1997, we actually had a, a non-trivial incident with that. It's called the um, 7007 incident, the AS7007 incident. In April 1997, my network services, MAI network services, accidentally made a BGP announcement of a bunch of prefixes. It was apparently some pre that they had something going on on their network where they got announcements of larger prefixes, and then they had something that cut those up into smaller slash 24s and used those internally on their network. Mm, okay. But they got the configuration wrong and announced it oh, to the God. rest of the world. What that did was basically reroute most of the rest of the internet down their pipe, which was about 45 megabit. Oh, geez. <laughs> which at the time, that was that's a T that's a T3. That's that's a at the time, that was a substantial pipe, but not an internet-sized pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so we were talking about earlier about how routes work. So usually if they just re-announce the, the internet, they would be contending with the rest of the internet for the same routes. But mm. because they announced them in those smaller slash 24 routes, they were the more specific routes. So they were always getting matched first. Mm, okay. And then traffic was going to them. Because mm. if you have, you know, your slash 16 and somebody announces your uh, slash 24 in there, it's going to mm -hmm. go to the slash 24. Right. Because it goes more specific to least specific. <clears throat> so they figured this out relatively quickly, turned off the pipe. Problem is the routes were still in the routers. <laughs> Shit. And a slash 24, or sorry, a slash 16 is 256 slash 24s. So the number of lines in the routing table got multiplied by two to the eighth or potentially mm. two to the eighth if you assume the slash 16 was the average size of the route, but it got right. a lot bigger, you know, possibly orders of magnitude bigger. Well, what was happening was some of the routers on the internet that were getting this routing table were crashing. Dang. And then they come back up mm -hmm. and then they get the copy of that routing table again. <laughs> and then they crash. <laughs> I've actually had, a, a internal network problem like this, similar to this happen um, mm. because the routing protocol we were using was inefficient for what was happening and it kept crashing the WAN router. So I've seen this kind of fun in action and it's, it's hard to get out from under without resetting both sides of things. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that was that was fun, and people learned a lot of lessons from that one. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> so uh, another example of this kind of thing of straight denial of service is in 2000, February 2008, the Pakistani telecom made a mistake in their routing. Apparently, they were trying to hijack YouTube, at least within Pakistan, but they accidentally announced it out to the rest of the world. And that might have been okay if there was some route filtering on their network service provider in Hong Kong, but there wasn't. So YouTube was then announced through Hong Kong to Pakistan. And for a few hours, nobody could get to YouTube because Pakistan said, no, 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 (laughs) I'm YouTube. And eventually they said, no, you know what? We're going to stop doing the censorship thing because there's a lot of international outrage. Right, they didn't say yeah. exactly that, but you know. So other things you can do is we were talking about doing a route injection, allowing you to kind of do a fairly specific uh, man in the middle. Mm-hmm. Well, we've seen a couple of things where large telecoms, actually all of these are, are, are state associated at least. Uh, both both of the examples I have are state associated, will grab large chunks of traffic uh, potentially to understand traffic flow just by rerouting it through them. Okay. Um, So in April 2017, BGP Mon started tracking uh, Ross Telecom, uh, which is a Russian telecommunications company. Um, So they they started tracking them, uh, tracking that they announced 50 prefixes that they didn't own that were owned by companies in the US, or a lot of them were in the US. I didn't see the complete list, but several of them were were definitely US companies. Mm -hmm. Um, This would have permitted them to see the traffic flow to those countries because they announced those routes and they would see those routes if they were more specific or if they were closer. Right. So BGP Mon said that this wasn't definitely an intelligence operation. Um, It could have been, you know, we were talking about making sure traffic flows through the network correctly. A lot of engineering that goes into that, that's called traffic shaping. It's They right. said it's possible that this was a mistake in, in the way that the traffic shaping was configured. But that's the rub to this kind of thing. It's really hard to tell the difference between a mistake and malicious action. Right, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, you could just maliciously do it and then be like, oh, definitely Oops. didn't mean to do that. Yeah, some people have been saying, and some of the things that I was reading, that gee, this kind of mistake seems to happen an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, fool me once. Okay, but you're like, hmm. But uh, the other example, I I'm, I feel more confident in, in calling it um, an actual intelligence operation. In July 2018, the Iranian state-owned telecommunication company uh, started making network announcements. Some of them were Iranian prefixes, and then 10 of them were prefixes used for the Telegram uh, anonymous communication application. Oh, really? Yeah. So what uh-huh. they were basically doing, what this looks like to me is that when they did this, this was a mistake, but we got to see the routes that they're announcing inside Pakistan. And mm. some of, and 10 of those routes were to Telegram, which screams to me that they were sending the Telegram traffic to their own man in the middle point point right. before sending it on. So they were observing at least who was making the <laughs> communication based on their IP address, even if they couldn't get into the actual encryption. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is the same thing as like cell metadata versus the actual call. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe your call was private, but they know who you call, who you called, and where you were when you did it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a few things that the world's tried to do. I mentioned BGP Mon a little bit earlier. So this was an idea. They they actually did DNS as well uh, with the same idea, the same passive monitoring technique, because they had the realization that it's not just here are all the routes that make the internet work, but the routes change over time. Hmm. And you can't see what happened previously unless you kind of get lucky. Well, what they started doing was they got various monitoring points throughout the internet and they watch all the, and record all of the changes. Okay. So they say these networks were announced over here, but now they started being announced over here by these autonomous system numbers, which didn't have them previously. Mm, okay. So they're, they're keeping a record of this and they've <clears throat> used that data to behaviorally de- determine what malicious stuff looks like or what some, some kinds of, of malicious use of BGP looks like. And they offer services to monitor that nobody's messing with your uh, with your address space. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did similar stuff with DNS. They use passive DNS, which allows you to even if somebody changes the, you can see if an IP address which you are now seeing as www.google.com was previously announced as a different name. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you can see changes in announcement like how long something has been a a name has been announced as a particular ip how long that name has been announced entirely which is Mm. actually really useful in uh in doing root cause analysis of potential security incidents right yeah and a little bit less of this but it, it, it it's used in conjunction with with just registrar information for a lot of uh DNS watering hole type stuff, people trying to register domains that are similar to other DNS no- domain names so that you can use them in phishing links and stuff. Mm, okay, um, yeah. Uh, that's that's another DNS security thing. Now, BGP Mon and DNS Mon, I, I forget which one comes first. Now, I, I meant to look that up, but I didn't. Um, that company got bought by Cisco and it's now part of Cisco's, um, I think, umbrella uh, service offering. But I think that as much as I try and be agnostic about individual companies when we do these things, I think that it's very important to talk about BGP Mon because it was a leap forward in the ideas of how we do D- of how we do BGP security. We right. meaning the internet. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, there was a working group uh, in the Internet Engineering Task Force for secure network. Um, IP uh, routing operations. And in 2012, they created the resource public key infrastructure specification. Then in 2017, the RFCs for BGP SEC were were, uh, published. So now there's a mechanism for authenticating whether an autonomous system number owns a prefix. Mm, But They're relatively new and they haven't seen a ton of adoption yet. Mm, yeah. Some of that is the whole universal adoption problem. When something gets relatively stable and used in a lot of places, it's kind of hard to get people to change or to get everyone to change is actually the better way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get people to change over. Yeah. I mean, when was the last time you validated a, uh, a file by looking at a 
SHA-256 hash instead of an MB5. When was the last time we actually validated some of the files we used? <laughs> well, if you're if you've configured your repos correctly on your uh, for your Linux systems, it's all doing PGP GPG uh, validation anyway. Mm-hmm. Just I'm just going to assume you're doing that. Oh yeah, yeah, we do that. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking more uh, on the other side of things, with like the, the science applications and stuff like that, like actually yeah. verifying things. Uh, yeah. Slight tangent. They. Uh, <laughs> they wanted me to use like software that had not been updated in the past 12 years. They were like, Hey, we want, we, we use this for like file transfer on um, like use this. And I was like, the, the source code is like on source forge net. And it has not been updated in like 12 years. I'm, I'm not using this. Like I have no idea what this is. 12 years. I think that even if it was in pretty good shape at that point, it's still using AES 128, probably not AES 256. Oh uh, yeah. If it's if it if, like, and that's assuming it's a fairly well written program at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's assuming it's doing any sort of encryption, and I, I, I highly doubt that as well. So that, that was another reason I was like, I don't know who wrote this. I'm not going to even like look at the source code for it. But well, yeah, also, I, I guess it's worth saying, like, why would you reinvent the wheel? <laughs> that I could go off on a crazy tangent about that. Of why constantly they're like, hey, we got a new file transfer thing. And I'm like, there we, we already have established protocols for the stuff. Please, for the love of God, stop making new ones. <laughs> stop reinventing the wheel. Yeah. So that brings us to some of the problems. The internet is too darn big. IANA gave out the last of those 16 million, 16.8 million, uh, 8 million address chunks a while ago. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of the regional registrars are pretty much out of addresses. And the thing is, they were giving out the addresses for free. It mm-hmm. didn't cost you anything, at least not to IANA or ICANN, to register the address space. The service fees for doing it was were minimal. You weren't renting them. You didn't purchase them at an auction or anything like telecommunication, band, uh, radio frequency bandwidth or anything like that. Right, yeah. But now they're property. More or less. The jury is a little bit out on how property they mm-hmm. are. That there hasn't been like a really definitive set of court cases. Um, mm-hmm. But having IP space is important. In fact, I've heard of cases where companies were bought solely for the fact that they owned IP address space. Really? I'm not sure if that was an edge case or what, but I, I, I definitely heard, heard an anecdotal story of somebody saying, yeah, and, you know, we bought this telecoms because we needed their address space. Yeah, like, that's surprising to me, but then also not surprising when I think about it a little bit more. I mean, in addition to the fact that we don't have any addresses, the fundamentals of the of IPv4, all of this IP networking, um, is that it's not efficiently used. You may have two to the 32nd addresses, and even taking out all of those non-routable addresses that we were talking about earlier on um, reserve space, mm-hmm. you're still not using every single address. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the project I was talking about earlier, it had you know a handful of load balance servers, a DNS server, and a few other things. And But because of the way routing works, we didn't put anything smaller than a slash 24 address at a site. And we were using maybe 16 or so addresses. Okay. So, so that left... <laughs> more than 200 addresses for each site unused. And that's not uncommon. It's just the way that things have to have to be 
you can't use every single address every single time. In fact, fully saturated networks are probably pretty rare. So that's part of it. So the number of IP addresses we have isn't the number of IP addresses that we can use. Mm-hmm. Now, the cloud can in some ways make that a little bit better, but honestly, it also makes it kind of worse because the way that a lot of cloud stuff does is very IP address hungry. Um, the way that their load balancers configuration and stuff works, uh, they use a lot more address space than you might think. But another problem is that the number of routing routes in the internet routing table, the IRT, is it's a lot. It's more than a third of a million, somewhere between a third and a half a million of and remember, this needs to be processed basically for every single packet. Right, yeah. And that's getting to the upper limits of what we can do with hardware. One of the perennial problems has been that you can have the IRT and process that super fast. And you can have access control lists to make sure that all of the traffic that you're getting is coming from a place that it should be coming from, mm-hmm. you know, anti-spoof rules. But you can't do both and pass packets fast enough. Right, yeah. And, you know, going back to address space exhaustion, well, one of the ways to make better use of the address space we do have is to cut it into smaller and smaller networks. But what that does is add more lines to the internet routing table. Mm. So if we went from the smallest announceable prefix, which is usually the standard, at least from from when I did this, of a slash 24 to a slash 25, that would basically double the size of the IRT. Yeah. I mean, not definitively, but it would add a significant number. And so the further you go down, the the more lines happen and it doubles every time you go down a bit. So the internet, IP, the IPv4 internet is straining at this point, but a new challenger appears, IPv6. Hooray. We've totally implemented uh, all that. <laughs> Well, it's been around, like you said, it's been around for a long time. I've been looking at stuff on it for more than a decade at this point. I got my original training on it like like 10 years ago. Um, so it's been around for more than long enough to do adoption, but that universal adoption problem is part of the problem. Right. So IPv6, the address space is the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet times the size of the current internet. So instead of a 32-bit address, it's a 128-bit address, but that's two to the 32nd times two to the 32nd times two to the 32nd times two to the 32nd. <laughs> like 1.2 unidecitillion addresses, more than there are atoms in the universe, I believe is the is the way that they put it. <laughs> I, I think I've heard, yeah, that comparison. Um, yep. So the obvious next question is, well, if you've got so much address space, but you have this number of routes problem, how do you make that jive? You can give out all the addresses you want, but if you can't get the routers to deal with them, then it doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's actually the most important property of IPv6. Instead of me as a network service provider and you as a, as a using entity, you having your own address space and announcing it through me, mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do is use part of my address space. And if you move from me as a network service provider to somebody else, okay. you're supposed to give up that address space and use theirs. Now, what this really? enables, yes. Okay. Because what this enables is summarization. I can take you and everybody like you and sum them up into the address space that I'm giving out. 
So I can give you a slash 64 and everybody else a slash 64 and then summarize those all into my slash 48. And that's one route instead of thousands, potentially. Mm, right. Millions, potentially. Uh, to the next router that I'm connected to as your network service provider. Mm. So the rules of IPv6 are trying to enforce summarization instead of having fragmentation. The idea there is to significantly reduce the internet routing table by enforcing summarization down every branch of the internet. Hmm. I mean, a lot of people talk about the address space, but the but the summarization internet routing table thing is probably the more dire uh, issue. Yeah, because I never heard that aspect of it. Like it was always just yeah, IP space. Yeah. And then it was always kind of also shrugged off of like, yeah, it's a major issue. Like we need this IP space, but uh, we can kind of like kick the can down a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a whole other episode on dual stack IPv6, IPv6, IPv4 tunneling and obfuscation, a lot of other crazy stuff that has to do with the implementation of IPv6. But that's probably its own episode. But the thing that I'm going to leave with is one of the fundamental differences between v4 and v6, which is the idea of giving a host multiple IP addresses. Every host. Pretty mm, much. Okay. If you've got a host that's got an IPv6 address, it probably has at least two. Because yeah. as a replacement <laughs> to DHCP, there is a network called Link Local. It starts with FE80. Okay, yeah, I think I've seen that. Yeah, so what that is, is the link local address. That entire block, everything inside FE80, anything that starts with FE80, all of that is link local. And what that essentially does is replace DHCP because you don't have a broadcast happening at the ethernet level. Your computer says, well, I'm just going to assume I have a network here on link local. Right, okay, yeah. And I'm going to ask for the router of link local. I'm just going to ask essentially the network address, hey, what's here? And it can get the prefix of where your internet address or any other IP addresses it's going to have through mm. just that mechanism. Now, there's some reason to use DHCP in conjunction with that. But that link local address allows for that router communication and the rest of your network configuration to happen at the network layer instead of at the data link layer. Mm, okay. Yeah. It actually simplifies a lot of the Ethernet and the, the data link layer networking interactions that you have to deal with in V4. Yeah. One of the things that V6 does for you is make a lot of that somewhat too much simpler. So in that case, you have your link local address and you have your internet address. Mm -hmm. So that internet address lets you go, go anywhere in the internet. Right. But the thing is that link local is the lowest of those reserved prefixes. There's FCOO, which is site local. Okay. So anything that starts with FCOO is the site local network. So it has a unique address within your site. But if you wanted to put your DNS server on a particular port, or sorry, on a particular IP mm -hmm. in FCOO, and you took that system and you moved it to a different network, but that network also had the DNS server on the same IP address, it would just look at the correct DNS server automatically. Okay. Because it's essentially making sure you have you can have the same reservation site to site as because those sites are never communicating with each other 
on FCO addresses. Mm. So these go all the way up to uh, what's called unique local. So that you can have kind of an internet sized, well, nearly an internet sized network that is internal. I actually think that some of those ideas should be used in various clouds. The idea of having cloud services that are available at FAOO. So you have FAOO and in AWS on a particular address in FAOO where all S3 endpoints are, you now no longer need to use V4 address space for that oh. stuff or even V6 internet address space. It's all just in the, the cloud has a, has, a, um, has a cloud local address for the S3 interface. Um, okay. I think that that's uh, would really play into the strengths of V6 and the cloud. Uh, none of the providers that I know of do anything like that, but I really hope that they consider some engineering in that direction as they kind of move into V6 world. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good uh, a good fit for that. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the whole internet. One podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Was it too big? I don't know how long we've been recording. It felt like a big one to me, but... Uh... <laughs> Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.